Providing your own cannabis is exploding across the United States. Some folks are self-contained, growing and smoking their own flour. Some neighbors are working in small groups, with some neighbors growing, while others are turning the flour into edibles, tincture, bubble hash, and hash rosin. There are so many options for making high-quality cannabis products without expensive equipment or hydrocarbons. Communities of cannabis patients and enthusiasts are coming together to be self-sufficient. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. This month, regenerative farming nutrient company Everflux is giving away their full line of products to one lucky subscriber. You'll receive a full-size bottle of their Bioflux fermented plant booster, their bamboo wood vinegar biostimulant, and a big old bucket of Terraflux, their infused biochar blend. You'll get all three. Make sure to listen to their commercial during the first break to learn more. Go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is Ganja Gill, the Ice Wook. I connected with Gill after watching a video of him giving best practices for making regeneratively-minded hash at the Dragonfly Earth Medicine Hive Gathering earlier this year. Gill is a lifelong cannabis cultivator and hash maker. He's your hash maker's hash maker. His hard-to-find hash and hash rosin are sought after by heads throughout California. Gill is incredibly difficult to connect with. He lives way out in the forest and doesn't often return to town. We eventually were able to connect via satellite phone to record this episode for you. Today, we're going to talk about fine-tuning your ice water hash production, some tricks of the trade, and why making quality hash is a love language. Welcome to the show, Gil. Thank you very much, Django. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Awesome. So let's get right into it. You know, um, a lot of people, the first thing that they learn about when they when they start trying to figure out how they're going to make ice hashes at home is um, about hash bags, right? And, you know, hash bags have now been around a long time. And, of course, there are the original bubble bags. Um, and, and now there's a whole bunch of knockoffs. And actually, some of the knockoffs are pretty damn good, too. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, for yourself, what do you look for when you are buying a, uh, a hash bag? You know, I, I, you know, my first set was, uh, you know, bottom mesh and I liked that, but now I'm seeing these new ones that have got mesh on all sides and I kind of covet those as well. So what are your thoughts? I'm just a frugal person by nature. Um, if you know me, that's just how I am. I tried to garden. Um, as inexpensively as possible. And when it comes to extraction, I kind of think the same thing. Um, I don't try to cut corners per se, but I am often making this in a home setting. I'm not really in a lab-like situation. So again, um, not necessarily cutting corners, but I'm also not trying to spend tens of thousands of dollars to accomplish what I'm trying to do. So having said that, affordability is important to me personally, simply because if you wash fresh frozen material, you're going to destroy bags. 
um, just the way it goes, unfortunately. Um, you can stay on top of cleaning your bags, which I do, um, but eventually the bags get ruined. They don't last forever. You know, if you're washing dried material, they seem to last longer in my experience, but, uh, you know, uh, typically they just don't last forever. So I see some bags out there these days that are getting more and more expensive. And personally, they kind of turn me off just to the extent that I see them as disposable. Having said that, at the same time, if you're washing as much material as I am, it's very small expense, the bags in the grand scheme of things. So I'm kind of being vague. I'm not giving a real straight answer right now, but I personally do use bubble bags. Um, they've always worked for me. I've been using them almost 20 years now. Uh, they give me good results. Uh, they last long enough. I can get them for a very affordable price. I like them for that reason. I've seen now Marcus just dropped all side mesh walls. I am interested in trying those. I would like to try those. But uh, what were you going to say, buddy? I was going to say when you're looking at bags, um, are you looking primarily at the like the quality of the stitching and the material itself and whether or not it's a bottom or a sidewall? Or is there something else, um, you know, another variable that you look at in addition to that? No, that's very important. You know, the stitching is probably mainly what it is. Like, to me, you can kind of get a good gauge on how quality something's made by looking at the actual stitching. Um, stitching is good. Materials that they're made is good. If you want to get really, really technical, you know, you magnify. Um, you look under a microscope at the actual mesh. Um, I will say that, that not all mesh is created equal people are using less um, professional mesh than others. And then some people are using really professional mesh, um, like companies that are using more accurate micron sizing, sizing that is inaccurate. So if it's a 90U bag, then the, the spacing is, is for 90U. I have found sometimes looking at other brands real close under the scope, it might not be what they're claiming it to be. And that could be just from simple error or just using more generic screen. But to me, that is important. You want to be actually capturing what you are intending to capture for sure. So bags are important, but like I've made great hash with all bags. That's kind of where I'm at is like I don't really want to hop on the hype train there's a particular brand of bags out there that I'm not going to mention that everyone promotes and personally me I had a terrible customer service experience with them it really turned me off I will not use that product anymore because that's just what type of stubborn asshole I am you know <laughs> so again me personally I don't put much weight in the bags you know obviously there's a certain level of quality that should be brought. But at the end of the day, I've had people send me these random bags from random people. It's a bag. You know what I mean? Like to me, that's not going to make it or break it for you personally. Again, I stand by Bubble Man's product. There's definitely other ones out there that are decent. I'd be scared of anything with a really high ticket item. Um, but I'd also be scared to maybe use something that was extremely um, inexpensive. 
I think what's really important first and foremost is just clean the shit out of your bags when you get them. When you uh, get your bags, clean them, clean them, clean them, clean them, clean them 12 times if you have to, because I've had to before. I've cleaned bags before. You go to do a wash and then you see fibers in, in, your, in your product. And there's nothing more disheartening than to go months of growing resin extracting the resin and then looking down and realizing the bags that you purchased have actually contaminated the resin that you just harvested you know to me that is just the biggest kick in the nuts i've experienced so again personally you know uh, not all bags are created equal but uh don't trip out on what bags you have available to you you know just make sure they're nice and clean seem solid and that's really what's all that's important to me personally I do like this, the mesh sidewalls, the all mesh as someone who works by themselves. That's something I kind of just started playing with this past year. I'm excited to see that Bubble Man came out with some. They save your back. You know, if you're pulling large washes by yourself all day, every day, those all mesh ones are, are definitely really nice in my opinion. There's something to be said for them for sure. So, you know, there are there are different sizes of sets and everybody kind of has their own thoughts on what their favorite bags, you know, favorite, you know, micron bags are to use. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, my first set was a nine set and there were several of the bags that I just never freaking used. And now you get people who are selling, you know, you know, three, four five bag sets um, and you know, they cost a little bit less, so you're not paying money for bags that you're not using. Um, what are your thoughts as far as how many bags are, are you know, the best to buy? Do you use all nine of yours or you're like, you know, in the end, we're probably only going to use four. So a four set will be the way to go. It's a really good question. Um, to me, it just depends what your goals are, what you're trying to do. Um, me personally, I make a lot of hash rosin, but I also make a lot of just hash melt. Um, to me, they are two different things. So I wash for them differently. Um, if you're washing for more of a full spectrum hash rosin type situation, less bags is the way. Um, if you're looking for more of a melt situation, to me is use all the bags you possibly can. And sometimes you don't know what you're trying to make, you know, that the, the strain or the cultivar you're using dictates what you're going to make, you know? So if you're going to wash something for the first time, sometimes I tell people do a test wash and use all your bags, use all your bags. That will give you a lot of information. It'll show you where it dumped and where it didn't dump. And then it might let you know, you know what? There wasn't really all that much 73 anyways in there. So we could negate that bag and throw it into the 90 if we wanted to. And again, that's just hypothetical situation that I'm describing. I would probably very rarely put the 73 in the 90. But again, uh, there's just situations that you wouldn't really know until you wash. And then you know what the size of the heads are and where it's spitting and whatnot. But uh, more bags for melt, less bags for rosin. I never use a 25U bag. To me, that just slows down the uh, the, the draining. And I've never grabbed anything from a 25 micron bag that I felt like was worth, you know, keeping personally. So, uh, you know, if I'm going to do a full spectrum hash wash, I'll typically, you know, wash in a 220. 
I keep the 190, the 160, the 90, and the 45. It's pretty much those four bags that I'm filtering through for the full spectrum uh, hash rosin. And when it comes to the melt, like I said, I'm going to use all eight of those bags. Right on. So um, do you really think that they're like, as far as like making connoisseur grade versus regular toker grade um, outside of, you know, the little, uh, the little pieces of material that might get in your finished product, which of course sucks. And as you've already referred to, you know, it's, I would think that um, mediocre bags plus good technique could make killer hash the same way that great bags and crappy technique could equal poor hash. And so I generally encourage people to buy the bags that fit their budget, but go heavy on care preparation and technique. Does that, do you, you know, does that make sense to you? That totally makes sense to me. And that is where I am at with mechanical extraction. Um, Growing cannabis and extracting it inflates egos. It's just something that I've come across in my life. It's how it goes. I don't know what it is about the nature of growing cannabis, but it does that. And I'm just here to say I really, really try to portray that I have no ego when it comes to this. It is always the ganja doing the performance. It is always the ganja that is turning heads, impressing people. Mechanical extraction is simply not that hard. Anyone can do it. It's like cooking is what I like to describe it to people. Some people are better at cooking than others. That's just the way it is. To me, the people that are better at cooking are just better at following directions. And then they might even have a little bit of passion about it as well to add to it. Anyone can mechanically extract. If you have passion about it, you're going to pursue it with more passion and more focus and more drive. And yeah, you'll probably be better at someone who's being forced to do it for an hourly wage job, which doesn't make sense to me, but it's probably going on somewhere in the world. But uh, (laughs) the end of the day, it's not that hard to mechanically extract. Anyone can do it. What it comes down to is the material, the material, the material. If you're extracting great material, it's going to be easy. If you've got some mediocre stuff, it's just always going to be mediocre. So, yes, you can extract, make amazing hash with decent bags and great cannabis. With decent cannabis and great bags, good luck. (laughs) So, um, actually, the first time that I came across you, I was actually watching a video, and you were talking about the choosing of material. And that's when I first got turned on. I'm like, oh, this guy really appro- approaches making ice hash in the way that you know way that I value. You were talking about how um, you know you were talking about some of the attributes that you you look for when choosing hash. But then you also said, as you've kind of referred to earlier already, that that the ganja will tell you you know what application will be best for it and what bags to use so so i'm going to kind of give you this like you know broad question and so that you can kind of take us through your thought process how do you choose material and when you're when you're examining material to potentially wash what are you looking for so that's a good question um i'm in a different situation with people than to be honest 
currently I am only focused and for years now I've only been focused on processing my own material that I grow myself. So it's kind of easier answer than could be where it's like I freeze everything I grow and I wash everything I grow. So it's not really um, a debate of, hey, am I going to wash this or not? If I'm growing it, I'm washing it. Um, And again, I am only washing my own material. Uh, So I'm not really going to other farms and looking and seeing like, oh, is this potentially something I should wash? It's not really necessarily going on because that's not what I'm doing with my time. But I do just in theory, walk a lot of farms and wonder, hey, would this wash, would that wash? And to me, it comes down to two things. It's the texture of the the resin and the structure of the flower. That's what I'm looking for first and foremost. You know, if I can touch that resin and I can see heads on my hand, you know, it's that dry um, resin that you can literally just touch a flower, move your hand, and you will see heads on your fingertips you know uh it's not that super sticky resin that like just so sticky that it just leaves like i said just a a smear on your hand in theory you won't see the heads um and then also a a structure of flower that exposes a lot of surface area is how i describe it not necessarily really large dense spears but stuff that actually exposes the surface area um you know allowing the material to to come off basically you know making it where it gives it up when i prep the material that's another big part of the process as well is you really want to break the stuff down as much as you possibly can you know certain structure of flour allows you to break it down naturally to very small and then other structure of flower it's really big and it just doesn't lend itself to being broken all the way down um but those are the two things that i look for first and foremost is basically the the texture of the resin and the structure of the flower and then obviously i'm i'm forgetting just the smell the overall aroma and smell you know of something isn't appealing to me uh, the smell, I'm not, I don't really care about washing it. You know what I mean? Even if it's the greatest resin in the world. Many years ago, we all used to wash a bunch of ogre. And it was like, oh, it dumped ogre. It was just so much resin. It was white. It was great. Just didn't really have much of a smell or anything. To Now we've all forgotten about it at this point. You know, it's kind of got to be terpy first and foremost, especially in 2020. You got to come with something really loud and something to get your attention these days right on so those are those are good i um suggestions for you know if we're shopping around for a flower that we're gonna run or for confirming the flower that we already have that we want to run it um i do like this idea though which um you know i had not come across before i talked to you about somebody who who exclusively grows their own stuff and then washes their own stuff um, for for people who are listening who like that idea, um, you know, when you are choosing the uh, the the flower that you're going to grow for a season, you know, if you're going to run a bunch of it, that's a, that's a lot of commitment to grow a lot of that one plant. So, um, do you, for example, run a couple trial plants? You know, summer one, and then if you like it. You, you know, you start earlier in the season and, may, and, and start those plants again and clone them and put them into your grow so that 
you have it in volume the next year. Um, I guess that's kind of a, a way for me to back into how do you choose what cultivars you're going to run? Um, since I know that you're an, uh, a primarily an outdoor guy, um, I kind of think that generally you need to test it one summer and then go big with it the following summer, unless you've got a different technique. No, that's, uh, that's smart. That's, uh, that would be a very well calculated way to do it. Um, I am blessed enough to live in, you know, the cannabis hub of the world, in my opinion, which is Humboldt County. And I am surrounded by ganja people who, you know, all we do is talk, speak, eat, sleep ganja. And fortunately through that, there is just certain cultivars out there that we know perform in hash um, mechanical extraction um, over the years. There's just kind of been tried and true ones that we all know work. Fortunately, people have then begun breeding with those same tried and true strains. So, you know, there's certain genetics that you begin to be familiar with. And then, then you know that they perform um, a lot of clone only strains are floating around Humboldt County that we've all determined, you know, these ones wash, these ones don't wash. Um, so fortunately, I'm in that position where I have access to solid genetics that, you know, myself and others have tried over the years, and we know they perform. Um, now, having said that, over the years, I have been growing a lot of these, what I call them now classics, you know, classic um, mechanical extraction strains, uh, classic, uh, you know, solventless strains like, you know, garlic cookies, GMO. We all know a dumps, strawberry banana. We all know a dumps, key lime pie. It works great. You know, there's cookies and cream, you know, there's all these different things out there. Gorilla glue, sour diesel, you know, we can just keep naming them wedding cake, all the cakes, you know? So there's different things that we know for a fact wash, um, so it's real easy to plant those and just know. Um, I will say, learn from my mistakes and don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, mm -hmm. don't grow one varietal. Grow multiple, you know. Grow, you know, as many as you can within reason. You know, that can become a problem too. Just having too many things, that becomes a burden. So, you know, I think diversity is definitely a good approach um, definitely running some tried and true things is always wise as far as a business goes, but I'm not going to pretend that I don't chase, um, terps and there is something extremely exciting about growing strains that you don't know that they're going to wash. Maybe you got it from a breeder. You know, there's a lot of breeders these days who are breeding, for hash, you know, Ani Noodles, Harry Palms, Exotic Genetic Mikes, you know, there are all these different guys uh, that are out there that are breeding strictly for hash. So to me, there's these sure bets where you can get the clones that you know wash, you can try to get the seeds from the guy who's breeding for hash. But like, I'm not going to lie, like right now, my second round is all seeds. They're all seeds, all different phenos. Um, yeah, I'm doing it with the intention that hopefully it all washes, but I don't know. You know, they're definitely hashy crosses, so some of them are going to come, but some of them are not. And that's kind of just the life of a hash maker. You know, as a hash maker, I have eaten it 
many times thrown thousands of dollars in barrels to get nothing. You know, that's just kind of uh, the nature of being a hash maker. There is definitely some faith involved. And to me, you have to be in it for reasons that, you know, you have some questions that you want answered or you have some things that you want to discover yourself potentially. And that's why you're doing it. You're doing the research through washing it. And it's not all home runs. It's not all grand slams. It's very much ups and downs. And that's just the way it goes. I was talking to a guy at the, um, at, a, at an after party after Emerald Cup. And uh, I actually don't know his name, but um, he said to me, he says, the worst hash he makes is hash that he's making for money. And the best hash that he makes is stuff that he's making because he's passionate about the cultivar or he's making it for he and his friends to smoke. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense to me personally. You know, it's all about intention in life. It really is. Tell a lot of people, you know, cannabis, yeah, it can make money, you know, totally. This industry is profitable. I'm not going to try to act like it's not. But the people that flock here strictly for profits, strictly for money, I tell them all, all the time, like, there are so much easier ways in this life to make money. If you really, your sole focus is to make money, don't get involved in cannabis. There's easier ways to get money. Money comes and money goes. Um, cannabis, yeah, you can get rich growing it. But the people who come here solely for the money, they fail. They leave. You know, they, they spend lots of money and uh, have these, like, you know, crazy ideas. But it doesn't seem to pan out to those people, in my opinion. You know, it's like, to me, you know, passion and cannabis are intertwined you know it's this thing where i pursue it because that's what i choose to do you know the money is like a a secondary thing that just comes along with it to be honest you know but what keeps me interested in cannabis is cannabis you know it's 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 a, the biggest rabbit hole that ever existed in my opinion <laughs> you know uh we can go down any road and talk about anything, you know, you want to talk about soil, nutrients, you know, uh, environment, strains, you know, like extraction is just another one. And that's just a small piece of it. There's so many other facets of extraction that we can talk about, you know, so, uh, you know, extraction is just one way to, uh, to look into cannabis, you know, to look at it more closely, to learn more about it. It's just a way to focus your intent is how I see it. You know, like as a cannabis grower, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to say? You know, there's so many different avenues that you could be taking, you know, are you trying to produce for flour? Are you trying to grow the most? Are you trying to grow just a little bit? Like, what are your intentions? You know, me personally, once I started focusing towards hash, it, it just all made sense to me everything clicked. It was like, Oh, this is it. This is why I'm growing is for this. They're, they're different things in my opinion, growing for extraction and growing for flower production. You know, they kind of lead different lives. Yeah. That's a, I can see how that is also like the perspective of a true, you know, passionate artisan, right? When you're doing it for your heart as, as, as well as surviving. And I personally think it's really great, you know, as, as really premium hash rosins and, uh, 
and even melt become increasingly popular in the scene, it's nice to see high-quality product fetching good prices from a lot of people now. Um, you know, the, there's always been a hash market, but this, you know, the 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 market for elite hash and really good hash rosin is certainly exploding right now and, and is becoming this, you know, increasingly large part of our scene. The last question I want to ask you about the choosing of material is, uh, uh, do you have any, uh, insight on, uh, washing indoor material versus washing outdoor material? Oh, I'll talk to you about that. We could talk about that all day. If you wanted to, Shaka. we could just go back and forth. About indoor, no, that is a, that is a interesting subject to me personally, because yes, for the past, uh, I think it's seven years now I've been cultivating solely outdoors. You know, I hung up the indoor towel. I've only been outdoors for seven years, you know, running some nursery inside here and there, some moms and stuff like that. But I haven't really flowered indoors in years now. Um, And there's definitely this, you know, thing going around, I feel like, in the community where people are convinced indoor flower is superior than outdoor flower. And therefore, indoor-grown resin is superior than outdoor-grown resin. Um, Me, personally, I do not believe that could be further from the truth. Um, Indoor will always, you know, require a higher ticket because it has a higher overhead. And I am not going to argue with that. You know, if something costs more to produce inside... Okay, cool. You know, get more for it. You know, can you grow more aesthetically um, pleasing, pretty flowers indoors? Yeah, you're in a sealed room. You know, it's literally sealed. You're not in an outdoor environment with fluctuating light patterns, you know, different weather, you know, not to mention insects, wind and all of the above. You know what I mean? There is some things going on outdoors that you just can't control, you know. And yes, we are trying to make clean resin. That is the goal of a hash maker is to make very clean resin that is simply just resin. So obviously that is easier to do indoors. You're in a sealed environment. Obviously it's easier to keep contaminant out of indoor grown resin. It's just a fact. So, you know, a lot of people I know who I see extracting indoors I'm like, you should be doing melt. All you should do is make melt because it's so easy to make clean melt in an indoor situation. It's not grown outside with the dust flying around and everything else, you know. So indoor, it's very easy, in my opinion, to create clean resin for sure. However, the sun produces terpene levels and compounds and flavors and things that no lamp could ever do. I just don't believe it. So I see these terp results and these um, even just uh, potency tests from same cultivars grown outside versus inside, and the terp levels are quadrupled. To me, you can't argue with data. I have very rarely seen like terp levels that have rivaled outdoor ones in my experience do they exist i'm sure you know but to me it's easier to grow more complex 
uh, terpene profiles outdoors in the great outdoors. And I also will just always stand by the fact that there's all these things that come into play when you're growing outdoors, you know, like to me, things that I like to think about, you know, that to me are kind of like these romantic ideals about cannabis growing, you know, like I like the idea that cannabis grown in Southern California is different than Northern California and the stuff in Washington is different. And I like to see how humidity and elevation and, and, you know, terroir and all that plays a role in the production of cannabis, you know, indoor growing is really cool. I, I got awesome homies who have dedicated their life to it and they're doing amazing things. Shout out to my homies in Rhode Island, Liberty LLC. They're doing amazing things with living soil inside. Steve Cantwell in Vegas, Green Life Productions. Blows my mind every time I see it. I had the luxury of walking here last summer. It was one of the greatest indoor facilities I've ever seen. So I'm not trying to take away from what people are doing indoors. Many states don't allow outdoor cultivation, so you can only do what you can do. But uh, at the end of the day... For me personally, I much rather enjoy working with outdoor resin. Typically, people grow larger plants outside. It's all just uh, proportional. Larger plants mean larger trichome heads, larger yields. Um, I enjoy working with the resin outdoors. A lot of times, it's more able to be captured um, I find a lot of times the stuff indoors is very greasy, very, very hard to capture. Uh, um, and there's there's great qualities about that. You know, there's nothing wrong with greasy resin besides the fact that it's hard to capture, you know. So uh, there, there's great things all around, you know. You can grow great resin indoors and you can grow great resin outdoors. Um I obviously am biased because what I'm focused on is growing outside and it's because I live in a great region for growing cannabis outdoors. Um, if I wasn't, I would obviously be growing it indoors. Um, doesn't bother me that indoor commands a higher premium, but the whole rhetoric of indoor rosin is better because it was grown indoor. I just think that's bullshit, you know, like I've seen a lot of indoor stuff that like wasn't really turning my head. Well, that is probably the most elegant and insightful uh, comparison of indoor and outdoor that I have ever heard um, that was beautifully put together. And that's probably informed a lot of folks. And it's nice, too, to hear. Uh, a kind of a summation of the pros and cons, which kind of like le satisfies both the indoor people and satisfies the outdoor people since you spoke to like the clear advantages of both. So that's great. Um, let's go ahead and take our first short break. Um, we'll be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is Hashmaker Ganja Gill, the Ice Wook. For many, transitioning to organic gardening can be overwhelming. There's so much to learn about soil biology and fermentation. Bioflux Fermented Plant Boost from Everflux simplifies organic farming so you can start growing organically today. Invented by a California farmer growing organic for 40 years, Bioflux is a fermented natural farming preparation for those who want a natural microbe booster without having to brew their own. 
This extraordinary chemical-free growth and terpene enhancer improves root development, accelerates the conversion of organic matter into humus, increases nutrient use efficiency and uptake, and increases beneficial microbe activity. In addition to the Bioflux fermented plant booster, Everflux also makes an activated biochar called Terraflux that is infused with the Bioflux plant booster. Imagine combining the buffering and rhizosphere enhancing qualities of biochar infused with a range of earthworm castings, insect frass, kelp and crab meal, oyster shell, and other ingredients. I'm using Terraflux infused biochar this summer myself, and it smells alive, rich, and potent. These products have been scientifically proven to match yields and increase flower quality and pest resistance when compared to traditional NPK inputs. If you are looking for reliable organic fertilizers that will free you up to focus on other aspects of your garden, consider using the range of all-natural regenerative fertilizers and natural biostimulants from Everflux. Find out more at everfluxtechnologies.com or by following their Instagram at Everflux. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a replacement for using peat moss. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers know that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys habitat and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. But now there's finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that shares the same benefits while also being sustainable. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, it actually is made from upcycled organic paper and tree bark. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss has the fluffy nature of peat moss and handles exactly the same. And like peat moss, pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations, including a nutrient-enhanced blend, a coco-coir blend, and also as an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T. M-O-S-S dot com. Growing healthier, more sustainable plants. Pit Moss. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband. And their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. 
If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company, let them know Shango sent you. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is hash maker Ganja Gill, the Ice Wook. So during the first set, we were talking a lot about, you know, the, the types of bags and the materials that you needed just to kind of like get us started. But during the second set, we're going to talk a lot more about the actual process of, of manufacturing and mechanically separating the heads. So, um, so Gil, let's start with temperature of the location. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, have got these very, um, very expensive locations with, with like, you know, a gazillion Watts of air conditioning. And I really like visiting those places and a lot of really high quality hash comes out of those, those locations at the same time. I know that I've hung out with my friends and we have washed on a, on a deck, you know, on a, on a summer day where the, where our washing machine is like in the shade, but we're in the sun and we're, we're, we're having as much social time and enjoying ourselves as we are making the hash. And we've also made good hash, not in a freezing environment. And so my question for you is, is how, uh, how important do you see the temperature of the location being and, and where on that range do you think that we want to be both for the, 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 the home hash maker who's making something for their head and also somebody who is planning on, on sharing with their friends, maybe even at a price. That's a great question. Um, you know, there's lots of variables in my opinion. Um, the first and foremost is, is what are you washing? You know, what, what kind of material are you washing? Um, decent, you know, to me, if you're going to wash fresh frozen, you need a cold room. Um, that's not every single situation. Certain strains have a more drier resin like GMO or strawberry banana. You might get away with doing that in a not cold room. But if you're going to wash freshly frozen cannabis, to me, you're going to have a lot easier time in a cold room. And by a cold room, I mean under 50 degrees. If you can keep it under 50, it's going to be better. The colder, the better. If you could keep it mid-35s, that's ideal. Um, I understand that's not really possible for everybody, such as myself. Um, I live in Trinity County. Um, it's mid-July. I just harvested some light dip. Um, it's 100 degrees during the day. My little cold room cannot keep up with the ambient temperature outside. So it's part of the reason I you know, work and live seasonally where I am just cultivating all summer long and I wait for the colder weather to come in November before I start processing stuff. That's what works for me. 
I just have a small room that I wash in. It's like a eight by 10 room with just a typical window unit in there, you know, buy the biggest window unit you can afford. And I just have a little cool bot on it. It's like a $300 controller that basically just tricks the air conditioner into not freezing. And it just keeps it running and cycling below 60. So it'll get your room cold. You know, they're used in all different types of applications, cut flower industry, hunters use them, blah, blah, blah. They're out there. Um, you can definitely also get cold rooms um, that are affordable, you know, 3,500 bucks or so for a walk-in that you can just drop on top of a slab. To me, that's affordable. Um, obviously, it's not for some home hash maker, um, but I would still encourage you to try to use a cold space whether it be your basement, your porch, or you wash in the middle of the night. I've done that many times where, you know, sleep during the day, wash in the middle of the night. It's not that crazy to someone like me. Um, but to me, if you are washing freshly frozen material, you're going to be frustrated doing it in something that isn't cold. Um, you're going to coat your bags. You're going to hurt your yields. You know, even really greasy material in a cold room can be challenging. You know, a lot of times the wedding cakes and the ice cream cakes and the stuff that I wash, the stuff's just so greasy by nature that even in a 40 degree room, it's hard. You know, the difference between a 45 degree room and a 40 degree room is a difference. And then one that's 35, it's it's different, you know, like uh, it helps. So having everything be cold, 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 your bags cold, the water cold, your tools cold, everything cold, it does help with washing fresh frozen for sure. If you're going to wash dried material or flash dried material, it's not as important in my opinion. Um, man, I've done so many trim runs as a young kid, like outside, you know, uh, on porches, you know, not in controlled rooms at all. And it was never an issue, never an issue at all. So trim run or dried run, you know, I flash dried some stuff this past year and I washed that the flash dried versus, you know, I, I flash dried the same strain and then I fresh froze it just to wash the two and compare myself just to see the difference from my own, you know, knowledge teaches you a lot. I suggest anyone to do that. They're just trying to like figure it out for themselves and have some fun, you know, take the same material, give it a three to five day dry and then freeze it and then just fresh freeze it. Um, the stuff that has a three to five day dry, it was like so easy to work with. It was like washing GMO. It's just like, you know, very easy cleanup. There's no contaminant in the hash. It's like you barely have to spray it clean. You know, it isn't coating your bags. It's not coating your spoons it's like real easy to work with so if you're gonna work with dried stuff you don't really need a cold room so much you know and uh you know maybe that's what makes the decision for you if you're like hey i am in a warm climate i don't have a cold situation i would tell you personally you should probably dry your material if you're trying to extract it and that's someone who loves washing fresh frozen first and foremost but if you don't have a cold room to do it man I don't know. I'd be a little nervous, dude. You know, that's just me personally. Like I said, no, I got freezers right now of some stuff that I'm so excited to wash, but I'm not even thinking about it till come November. You know, it just doesn't seem possible. When talking about the final product, um, 
you know, it, it sounds like the process that you use is going to be dependent on whether or not it is uh, fresh, frozen or dried. Um, what do you see in the difference of the final product, though, at versus uh, fresh, frozen and dried? Um, the first thing that comes to mind is probably terpenes. But you've certainly seen, you know, a lot of, um, you know, head to head comparisons of the same cultivar being run both ways. What do you see the differences in the final product of fresh, frozen versus dried? You know, they're different. Um, I was just talking with a buddy the other day, yesterday, and uh, to me, they're very different. Um, I think there's just this weird thing going on, I feel like, in the cannabis community where people just love to jump on bandwagons. They don't necessarily have their own opinion, but like they got someone else's opinion in their pocket who they respect, and they're like, oh, I'm going to use that person's opinion because, I don't know, then I align with that person or something. I'm not sure what it is exactly, but feel like there's this whole oh indoor is better than outdoor and then oh fresh frozen is better than dried and like I was even on that train too where I was like you know how would dried material make better concentrate I don't believe it so that's why I started to do it myself you know who do I trust more than most people myself so I was like all right I am going to personally start drying material and washing it even though I don't think I like that, even though I think it might be a waste of my time, I want to prove to myself that, you know, that this, this is why and I have reasons to stand by. And through doing that, I don't necessarily have an opinion on one being better than the other. It all depends. There's just too much. Um, there's too much opinion involved in it where it's preference in my opinion, you know, um, they are different dried material and fresh frozen material are different. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with them being different things? I like, I like variety. I like there being other options and stuff like that. So I just don't feel like we need to say fresh frozen is better and dried is inferior or vice versa. To me, I try to tell people now they make different, different products. And you're asking me what is different about them. I find, um, you know, sometimes the dried material, it will make a drier resin. Um, I also find sometimes that drier material will yield slightly more, not necessarily exponentially more where you're like, oh, why are we even washing fresh frozen? I haven't really found that. I haven't really washed something dry versus fresh and been like the yield was twice dry. I am only washing dried material from now on. That hasn't happened to me. Very small yield increases. I have noticed for sure. Um, definitely different smells, flavors, aromas. And I'm saying different. I can't sit here and tell you that the fresh frozen is always louder because it hasn't been. I have washed some stuff that was dried. And I was like, Gil, that, that stuff is, that's louder. Like you got them sitting next to each other and you can't help but decide. And then I'll give them to a friend who's, who's, you know, very experienced, smokes a lot of hash and they can't tell me which one's frozen and which one's dried. So to me, that just shows you that there's a place for both. There is a place for dried material. There is a place for fresh frozen material. And you'll see these people who are quick to, 
knock the man doing the other thing. Oh, you know, fresh frozen's the way, screw dry material or screw dry, fresh frozen dries the way. And to me, yo, there's room for for all of us in this game. There's enough room for everyone. So don't knock the other man's hustle. If someone's stoked to wash fresh material, you don't know why they're washing fresh material. Maybe they don't have a space to dry it. Uh, You know, maybe there was a problem along the crop, blah, blah, blah. Who knows what? But, like, if someone's stoked on washing fresh frozen and they're making a great product, that's all I care about. And if someone's washing dried material, dry runs, and and making great product, that's all I care about, you know, is the end result. I just want it to be quality first and foremost. You know, that's what really matters. And just something that's trippy to me that, like, always, like, uh, interests me when I wash dried material is it always dumps in the larger micron bags. If I wash something fresh frozen, it'll yield, you know, let's say like in the 73 and 90, and then I'll wash it dried and it will be dumping in the 120 and 160. I wonder if the heads just naturally, you know, shrink, pucker up a little bit from the drying process. And then once maybe you hit them into that water, they actually expand is what I imagine is happening. I don't know what else could be going on. Um, I lack a lot of um, terminology and experience as far as the science goes. I am the master of bro science when it comes to hash making (laughs) and terminology. I am not going to sit here and try to sound like I'm a lab technician or that that, um, I have some kind of expertise that I don't. So again, a lot of the knowledge I've gained is simply through experience. And a lot of the conclusions I've come to are simply me just, you know, thinking about it and imagining it and coming to it through um, uh, common sense, I guess, you know. So again, I don't necessarily know that's what's happening with the heads, but that's what I imagine is happening. But something that I've seen over and over again is for some reason, the, the heads are bigger with the dried material. Typically, bigger heads mean better hash in my experience. I'm not necessarily saying that, though, in this regard. There's just something weird where, like, I'll have the stuff dump in the 190 bag. And I'm not saying it's, like, amazing 190. I'm just saying it's, like, when I washed it fresh frozen, there was absolutely nothing capturable in the 190. And then I washed it dry, and it was tons of stuff in the 190 like it, it just it's interesting to me you know you would think that a dry a fresh frozen trichome head would be bigger than one that you dried and then rehydrated but it's something that i've seen with multiple cultivars so that's just something that i've seen that i found interesting when i was physically washing this stuff but as far as having like a a, a rule of thumb for the end results like fresh frozen will always give you this and dry will always give you that. It hasn't been my personal experience. You know, things have surprised me and that's what keeps me doing it. Right on, man. That's beautiful. Like being able to keep that surprise in your craft too, probably keeps it, you know, fresh instead of getting bored and ever feeling like a job. So we were, we were comparing the indoor versus outdoor, you know, regardless of where we do, um, are growing or where we do um, our mechanical separation, um, we always need to make the plant material cold. And so um, we turn to ice. 
And uh, I'd like to hear your insights on on the kinds of ice. Uh, I think you were the first person who um, I met who actually cares so much to make his own ice, which I thought was pretty badass. And and it wasn't until I moved out to the country that I realized that um, the water that goes into making the ice matters a lot because um, there's a lot of minerals in the water out where I am now and uh, it makes crappy hash. So I actually, I actually can't use my local water. So, um, and you know, everybody's got different preferences about, you know, size of ice and edges and all this kind of stuff. Well, um, you have run a lot of ice. Um, What have, what does your experience tell you and, and what are some of your preferences? I'm going to be clear. I do not make ice anymore by hand. Oh. There was a time where I fully did do that and uh, enough respect to all the hash makers who are making uh, handmade ice. Uh, just to me, it becomes like a job unto itself of making ice. Like, man, I've got hundreds of ice trays and we used to sit there and pour them and I would have stand up freezers to fill with the ice trays and like, it was just a job unto itself to just <laughs> hand make the ice. Definitely, you know, made a nice larger cube and we were able to use the RO water. And, uh, man, if you're making hash on a small scale, um, I'm not discouraging you by all means, make your ice, you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, uh, but as far as practicality, if you're doing stuff on scale, Uh, making ice is not going to be possible in my opinion. You know, you are going to require a ice machine. Um, You know, luckily there's a lot of reverse osmosis ice machines available out there. Um, Manitowoc makes some, Oshizaki makes some. I might be pronouncing both those brands wrong. I apologize if I am. Um, uh, Oshizaki, they make a large cube uh, ice machine. You know, it's like one that like, you know, if you're in Vegas and you get a nice glass of whiskey, they give you like, you know, a large squared cube for it. They make a machine that does that. Um, you know, it doesn't last very long, I guess, because of the nature of it. The, the auger and the, the mechanics can fail is what they've told me. But they're not much more than the standard unit. So in my opinion, if you're going to splurge on an ice machine, I would definitely go with that larger square cube than the crescent cube that they typically make. But uh, again, you know, you're going to want to get an ice machine with uh, RO water, in my my opinion, is important. Um, uh, I luckily live in, um, you know, not far. I'm about an hour from Arcata. California, which is like the uh, hub of all things hippie and, uh, I don't know, uh, natural and, you know, old country living and whatnot. Uh, So fortunately, Arcata has the water store. Shout out Miss Aya's water store, Casey down there, supplying all of Humboldt County with the reverse osmosis ice. She's got a couple ice machines down there as well as a very nice water store that can give you great water. But she started making ice for the local hash community, not specifically the local hash community, but as you can imagine, there's a lot of people up here doing it. So she's providing reverse osmosis ice for the people doing a huge community service, which is really awesome of her. 
So believe it or not, man, I drive an hour and I load up my truck and bring it back to chest freezers at my place because I have not bought an ice machine yet. Again, something I should invest in myself. But as I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm pretty cheap, you know. So as far as buying an ice machine, if you buy an ice machine, to me, you got to keep it running. You got to keep it running or you're going to have to shut it down, take it apart, clean it all, store it. So it's kind of this game of like, I only work seasonally. To me, it makes sense to just get ice from her, support a local business. You know, otherwise, I'd have to be taking my machine apart and kind of putting it away for the summer, which again, it's not unrealistic, just uh, wasn't necessarily practical for me. So yes, I buy reverse osmosis ice from the store bring it out to my place, store it in chest freezers and use it as I need it. Um, not very practical, maybe for everyone. I have a lot of friends who make incredible hash and they get their ice from Costco. And I bust their balls about it all the time. <laughs> like to joke about how the food court down the way, it's not too far <laughs> from the ice machine. Those foot long Costco hot dogs and those chicken baked terps are working their way into <laughs> into your ice and you know their flavor and stuff. But but no, but seriously, like I don't know. Like I said, I know a lot of people who are are making gas station ice hash and it's fine. Uh, obviously, not all gas station ice is created equal. You know what I mean? I've been to some places and you're just like, oh god, this is terrible. And then other places are like, no, this is great. I would eat out of this cooler. So. To me, cleanliness is first and foremost, you know. Um, if you don't know what your ice situation is like, melt a bag of it in a five-gallon bucket. See what floats. See what's in there. Drink some. Does it taste like chlorine? You know, like little common sense things like that, you know. Uh, I have a lot of friends who believe if the water's really cold and the ice is really cold and everything's really cold, it's in there so short brief period of time it doesn't really matter and i have friends who are using hose water and gas station ice again me personally i am using reverse osmosis water and reverse osmosis ice to me that just takes out a variable for contamination you know your water's clean you know your herbs clean you know your ice is clean and you know your equipment's clean i feel pretty good about that um so comes down to preference I've seen great hash. I know great hash makers who are just using whatever for ice. So I don't want to like put it out there that people think they have to have reverse osmosis. That is not necessarily the case at all. Um, again, you live on a mountain. You got great spring water coming out the mountain all cold. That sounds even better than RO to me. So, uh, you know, just have clean water source, clean water, clean ice. That's what matters. That's great. Do you have um, any insight on the size of the cubes? Uh, you've mentioned preferring large uh, cubes a few times. Um, it, and is, is that just because, is that a personal preference or do you think that it actually functions better than smaller cubes or crushed ice? My point for that, for that mainly is I do multiple washes. You know what I mean? Typically, the stuff I'm washing requires three or four washes. A larger cube lasts longer, so you need to use less ice in between washes. It just allows you to go through less. Um, to me, it really is just about cold, cold water. Um, the agitation and the, the rowing or if you're using machines – 
that's what's breaking off the trichome head. It's not necessarily the ice. Um, ice contributing factor to that, yeah, I'm sure it's helping as well. But again, to me, it's more about the vortex of the water that's actually doing the mechanical separation. It's not necessarily your ice. So if you want to use crushed ice, use crushed ice. You want to use big cube ice, I don't really care. It's really just about being cold, cold, cold. The reason I like a larger cube is to me, it helps just last longer. So, you know, in between washes while that stuff's sitting and I'm filtering out, it's on ice still. Some nice chunky ice. That's how I see it. Right on. So uh, I have one question about water quality because we've already talked quite a bit about water quality, you know, going into the frozen ice. Um, but you, uh, speaking to your frugal self, um, you know, there's a lot of folks who are working at home and they live rurally um, and they have got maybe they've got mineralized water or maybe, you know, maybe they've got kind of sulfury water or, you know, there's a lot of variability in water as soon as well, heck, we could this is even a good question for the city grid because a lot of city grid water has got you know uh, uh, fluoride and chlorine in it and my question is is that you know we if we all have got the the you know the best practice of getting ro but ro is not available to us for whatever reason um how low do you think the threshold is for chlorine fluoride you know, or or these mineralization minerals to actually impart taste to the finished product. If we want to get RO, RO, that's one thing. But but how likely do you think it is that that these these lesser than waters are actually going to mess with the final hash product? To me, it's like it goes to like a common sense thing is how I would approach it. You know, um, obviously not all water water sources are created equal. Um, you know, I'm back from New England, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of my friends in Vermont, you know, the water that comes out the tap is seriously brown and extremely sulfury. To me, that's common sense. If your tap water, you know, is smelling sulfury, uh, is tainted in color, you're not drinking your tap water, you know, I wouldn't want to be making hash with it. You know, I just don't see how it's going to lend itself to that. Um, I would do whatever I could to have cleaner water. You know, to me, um, it's not a fine line, though. It's it's like obvious. It's like, oh, this water smells like eggs. Yeah, I'm not going to use it. You know what I mean? Or if you taste some water in the city and you're like, Oh, taste slightly chlorinated, you know, I'm saying ever so slightly, I wouldn't necessarily be terrified to use it. You know what I mean? Like if you live in a city, your water source probably isn't that great. If you're asking a hippie like me, you know what I mean? So, so uh, it's tough. You know, d do I expect you to go to the store and buy gallons of spring water to do your hash runs? If you're washing in a five gallon bucket, doesn't seem crazy to me if you're washing in 20 gallon barrel or 32 gallon barrels you know that kind of doesn't seem practical but to me then if you're doing that on scale then you invest in a water filter um small home batches again i go to like 
cooking ana- uh, analogy. Like if you're cooking at your house and you're making a birthday cake for your kid and it requires water and your tap water is brown, like are you going to use that or are you going to pour it out of like a jug of water? You're probably going to use a jug of water to make that. You know what I mean? So to me, just common sense goes a long way. You know, if your water's terrible, don't use it. Um, but just get a filter. There's all different kinds of filters out there. You know, you can get really quality filters for 200 bucks and you can get one for $5,000. It just kind of depends on what you're trying to do, what kind of volume of water you're trying to actually filter off. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of just figure it out for yourself. You know, like if you're just trying to make a little hash for yourself at home, make a little hash for yourself at home. And sadly, yeah, you might be like, you know what, the water ruined this hash. I've been there. I've definitely done that before. Um, And to me, the only way to determine that is just a little bit of common sense, you know, pour a glass of that water, look at that water, drink that water. If it's not something you're trying to drink, like, I don't know if you really want to soak all your resin in it, you know, (laughs) like, uh, you know, like, uh, that's just my opinion. And I think it is an opinion. You know what I'm saying? I have other friends who are like, hey, if everything's really cold, it's just an extraction thing. Nothing's getting absorbed. You're then putting it in a freeze dryer and it's, you know, sublimating out all the water. So, you know, I have some people who are probably going to listen to this and be like, dude, it doesn't matter. But again, to me, not all tap water is created equal. Fair enough. So we've already talked about uh, material quite a bit. Um, but at this point, you know, we're kind of going through the process and we're, we're still in the, in the prepping stage, you know, getting, getting our, 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 our getting prepared to actually make the hash. And, um, what do you do as far as breaking down the flour to be most prepared, um, for the hashing process? To me, it's all about exposing the surface area, break it down, break it all the way down. You got some chunky stuff. You're going to have to break it down. Like I don't like necessarily cutting into the actual flour just chopping up the flour i don't think that lends itself to making clean hash but again just the way the structure the natural structure of the plant allows you to break it down do it as much as you possibly can um you know um, sometimes i'll tell people you know keep a nickel size small you know the smaller the better if you've got a big old butt in there there there's trichomes on the inside of it and in order for you to get those you're going to have to physically break that big old bud up in your barrel whether you're using a a paddle or you're using a machine you're going to have to wash it and wash it until that bud um, breaks down and exposes all the trichomes so to me the best thing to do is just do that when you're prepping the material then you don't have to row it as hard or wash it as hard I want that resin just to fall off. So me personally, I spend a lot of time prepping and I break it all the way down. And then I put my turkey bags in my freezer with them open. I don't close them. I don't compact them. I leave it open for 24 hours. I feel that allows the moisture to escape the bags and to get stuck on the walls of your freezer or whatnot and doesn't necessarily... um, create freezer burn or too much moisture in your bags. Um, and I also feel like it allows the material to freeze quicker rather than like enclosing it and encapsulating it with a bag, a kind of almost, you know, 
does the thermophilic compost reaction where it does throw heat having all that stuff. So I figure just leave the bags open, allow it to escape the moisture to escape. Um, you know, and then also that way, when you open those bags to dump them into your barrel, they just fall apart. When I dump my bags into my barrels, it's just a bunch of loose little buds. It's not this compressed football of like ganja. You know, I see a lot of people still using vac sealers and stuff for their material. Like to me, don't compress your material. Do not compress it. Do not pack it in your freezers all crazy. Don't stuff a freezer in a day. You know, work multiple freezers you know, have the bags and they're all loose, all open so that when you dump them out, you want, I just see it as you want everything to be gentle. You want to be able to like gently roll the heads off those necks. You don't want it to be this like forced thing. So might as well just have it where all the material is exposed and everything can just fall off real easily. Right on. So <clears throat> let's talk about agitation now. So there have been so many evolutions in hash technique when talking about, you know, how actually to add motion to the ice and the flour to get those, um, you know, resin heads to knock off. When I, when I first learned around a decade ago to make my own hash, you know, we were using, uh, you know, the paint mixer on a drill and that was messy, but it was efficient and, um, and it worked. And then, you know, I, we we started having the advent of these small camping washing machines and you know people are running bigger washing machines too but essentially a washing machine that you know moves it around which is in a much more gentle way than the paint mixers and then you know some hardcore people have come all the way around and they're they're using hand paddles again to you know be super super gentle um with it and I think that each of those processes are all being used still today. So what do you see as the pros and the cons of some of these more common, uh, you know, methods for agitating? Um, um, I personally hand row. Um, I personally use paddles and I row by hand. Um, to me, if you work solo or if you just have a lot of material, a lot of material you're trying to process, there is a place for machines. Um, you know, one person can only do so much. So I understand the place for machines. My gripe with machines is just the cleaning of them. I just feel like you got to clean them when you're done, clean them before you use them. And I just feel like, when you're using machines or when I've used machines, I'm relying on them to run through a lot of material. So you end up not using one machine, but you end up using like 15 machines. And then your job becomes like, oh, every day cleaning these machines at the end of every day, cleaning these machines. And it's just a lot of maintenance. And personally, that's not how I enjoy spending my time. But again, uh, if you got a bunch of material to run, machines will help you do that. Me personally, I like the hand row. Um, the hand row has a physicality to it that can't be matched with a machine. You know, I joke around. It's like, you know, when you feel that fish on the end of your rod, you know what I mean? There's, there's a sensitivity with that, that paddle that you can achieve. Um, 
you know, uh, material me personally, I don't have an SOP, you know, a lot of people, everyone nowadays in 2020, they all want your SOP, you know, uh, show me how you do this, you know, and to me, you know, there isn't really one I, I, I approach each wash differently. And paddling allows me to do that. You know, I can paddle for 15 minutes, and then be like, look at the result and be like, you know, you went too hard. Or you know what, you're going to need to go harder. And that allows me to determine, you know, okay, you know what, I'm going to do this in four washes, 10 minutes each, and I'm going to start more gentle, and then I'm going to go more aggressive. And to me, that's kind of the approach that I start with is I try to make that first wash real delicate, real pure, and then I ramp up the aggression more and more with each wash. Um, I like hand rowing. To me, it, it allows me to be like, go harder or go less. The machines, they just have a timer setting. And they go one way and then go the other way. They don't really have like a aggressive wash or a light wash. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, someone would tell you, well, will you just adjust that through time? You know, you just do a three-minute wash versus a seven-minute. And I hear that. But some material is just denser and you have to beat the hell out of it. And some material is light and you got to be gentle. So personally, um, as weird as hand doing anything being more consistent than a machine doesn't make sense. But for me personally, it allows me to get more consistent results because I just cater the way I wash based on the material, if that makes sense. Yeah, I do follow. When you said that when you are using the paddle, um, you can get real time feedback on whether or not you need to, you know, go less hard or go more hard and be more aggressive. What is a sign or a signal that you are looking for that you have gone too hard and you need to mellow it out? Just green contamination in the in the product. You know, if you pull your bags and there's a bunch of green in there you've been beating the hell out of it. You know what I mean? Like, honestly, like, you know, uh, I've made very few, I made very little green hash in my life. Very little. Um, to me, you gotta really be beating the hell out of it to make green hash, like really going crazy, soaking it for crazy long, beating it for crazy long, because like, I've washed up a fifth time before and I've done it knowing like, okay, this is the fifth wash. Like give it your all, like really like let's try to get every single head off this and let's even try to make it green. Like let's try to be so thorough that we make, and, and it's hard. Sometimes it's literally hard in my opinion. So to me, you really got to abuse the material. Like I've washed with kids and they like, do this special little row that they do, you know, they like got this little, like, like a uh, posture that they have and <laughs> they just do this repetitive little row. And I can tell they think like this kid thinks he's fucking rowing in a special way. Like this dude thinks like he's got a special row technique. And like, to me, it's not that deep, man. Like you, you ju you're just agitating the stuff. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can do it wrong, but like, not really, man, to be honest. Like <laughs> I've wrote those bigger vessels, you know, brutless dropped those large 65 gallon troughs. I've gone at one with three other buddies before, like, let's just beat the shit out of this stuff and see what happens. And like, 
we've just been like, oh, it just dumped. Like, cool. We got <laughs> we got it out in two washes instead of three or four. You know what I mean? So to me, it's kind of hard to like, I don't know, overly beat up the stuff. That's my experience. Again, some people are listening to this probably thinking I'm crazy, but like I've never really done that. You know, I've never really like made green stuff and just totally have it be terrible. But I'm often usually washing fresh frozen. And like I said, I am kind of going gradually, you know, multiple washes. So um, as far as the washing machines and hand paddling both, um, you know, with experience, anybody can learn what the appropriate length of time is. But for the vast majority of people who are making hash, who are making it for themselves, they're never going to like really make enough hash to to know exactly when to stop. Um, are there any signs that you look for when either paddling or using the washing machine Um that tells you, okay, I have agitated enough, whatever I'm going to get is, has already come off. And now I just need to, you know, wait for it to settle in the bag. To me, it's just yields. You know, that's what I look to, you know, uh, my first wash is going to dump. My second wash is going to be about half what my first is. My third is going to be about half what my second is. And then I kind of gauge what's in the bottom of that third wash. You know, I'm like, you know what? I pulled 20 grams out of this. I know I'm going to get 10 more off of fourth. I'm going to do it. You know what I'm saying? But mm -hmm. sometimes you get from the first to second, then that third comes and you're like, you know what? There's really not much shit in here. It's kind of getting darker at this point. You just know, like, you know, like, ah, uh, that fourth wash is going to yield very little and it's going to be green. And sometimes though, if you're that home washer and you only got two pounds to wash, you might be like, I don't care. I'm just going to keep washing this until there is nothing left that I've done that. That's not crazy to me. Like I've washed stuff six times before and just pulled nothing out and been like, oh, that was a waste. You know what I mean? That's all it but, really But was. then, you like, know, uh, you're like, OK, now I know I'm done. Exactly. And then, you know, going forward, oh, I can wash that cultivar five times for this much time and keeping data is good. I have a little book, you know what I mean? Like to me for the hash maker, it's, it's nice. You know, uh, I'm not typically that type of person, but when it comes to hash, I do, I write down how much I'm washing. I write down, you know, how long I washed it for, how many washes, and then I'm writing down what I'm capturing so that I know my percentages. I know what's dumping in what bag and it's something to reflect on. You know what I mean? You can go back and look, you know, and you can see how something washed this year or that year and whatnot. But that's the only real way to know, you know, no one knows looking at material, how, Oh, that's going to take 45 minutes of agitation and it will be done. No one knows that the only way to do it is to do it, you know? And, to me, there's nothing wrong with washing material until there's nothing there. You know, what, what's wrong with that? You just wasted some time. That's all, you know. And at the end of the day, if you're thorough with your sprayer and cleaning the material, I've made some crazy green looking stuff blonde by just spending the time cleaning it, cleaning it, cleaning it, spraying it, cleaning it, spraying it, cleaning it, you know, over and over again. So don't be scared to make green hash like a, you might be able to clean it up, but B, like, worse comes to worse, you made some green hash, and I don't know, there's always something, you know what I mean? There's always something you can do with it, make edibles out of it, 
roll it up, whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'd rather uh, know you extracted it all than just know what's in the compost pile. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I'm, I'm guilty of that some days i'll wash all day long you get to the end of the day and you're like do i want to do a fourth wash on this shit right now like no i've already washed 15 barrels today like i don't want to do a fourth wash i know i'm throwing 40 grams of hash in my compost pile right now but like i don't want to do it you know and that sounds crazy but it happens right on so um uh my the excuse me the part of hash making that I like the least is, uh, draining the bags because, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, you're, you're, the bags are filled with water and you're lifting them up to, to create the opportunity for gravity to pull the water through the bags. And, you know, it's heavy and it takes a long time. And, you know, the first few runs, um, you know, you're all enthusiastic and you're feeling robust and it's good, but like, you know, if you're doing a lot over the course of the day, you know, by after lunch, you're feeling sluggish from eating and you're like, you're like this starts to suck and you, people start to cut corners, which is dangerous at that point. Do you have any, um, you know, insights or, or tricks about, you know, essentially lifting the bags up so that the water can drain through uh, most efficiently? Yeah, no, this is... This is a serious problem. I've definitely been there many a times where I'm just by myself, end of the day, just defeated, you know, body just exhausted. And you got like a 45U bag that just will not drain. And it's got like 20 gallons of water in there. And it's just like 100 pounds and you can't even lift it. You know what I mean? It's 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 stressful. And, uh, you know, uh, just the nature of resin working with fresh frozen material time is of the essence you don't have time and you know the longer that that bag sits the longer the resin coats it and makes it harder to drain you know so personally the thing that i found the best is i use 20 gallon bags and i use 20 gallon you know uh trash barrels little smaller 20 gallon brute trash barrels to put those in for the filter and um I use a conical drill bit and I drill um, holes in the bottom of of the the 20 gallon brute trash barrels. Um, You can use as many of those as you need. I have gone as far as I have a barrel for literally every bag. So the 45U bag has its own barrel. The 73U bag has its own barrel. The, the, you know, 90 U bag has its own barrel and you just stack them in each other like you normally would with the bags, but you have them in its own barrel. And that way you can kind of grab that barrel by the handles and you can kind of really give it hell, force it up. You know, that's what you basically got to do is you got to break the seal. You know, the hash is naturally through gravity being forced on the bottom of that screen and it's sealing it, making it hard to drain. So if you can grab that barrel and pop it up and pop it up and force, um, you know, that pressure, that suction that's starting to break, um, that will get that thing going again. Um, Sometimes it takes multiple pops. You got to really give it hell. But you grab that barrel and you've keep just just keep lifting it and dropping it lifting it and dropping it and lifting it and dropping it and if you just do that over and over again that bag will drain um sometimes it seems like it just will not 
but just keep lifting it and popping it and keep lifting it. And that's when it helps if you have a drain on your floor or, you know, and something large to drain in and you can really just take that barrel and just like put it on the ground. If that's what you got to do, then that's what you got to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, to me, it helps to have those brutalists with holes drilled in the bottom of them for sure. And again, you could just use one and put all the bags in that one and then then put that in another barrel. Um, I've seen many people's different setups to where they like put a small brutalist on top. Oh, sorry, I keep saying brutalist. Put a small trash barrel on top of another trash barrel. You'll see different people's pictures, but... There's all this different tech to just elevate that bag so that you're not really having to do much lifting yourself. I will say that just letting it sit there is kind of um, not the way. If you just fill it up to the brim and keep adding water and it's just slowly, slowly more draining, the move is to not just sit there and look at it. You need to be proactive. Even if you're just hitting the side of the barrel just over and over again. I've seen people use weird machines to vibrate the barrel and to hit the barrel and different things like that. But just agitation. Anything that you can keep it moving so that that water goes through is what you need to do. I'd love to see a supercut of all of the crazy ideas people have come up with to agitate the bag while it's draining to try to, you know, uh, open up the, the micron filter. I bet you there's some crazy ass uh, inventions that people have used that have both worked, not worked and worked, but been a pain in the ass. It'd be really interesting to kind of see them all lined up. So, so this brings us to the part where, okay, so we've got our, our, our hash bag and the water is drained out and our glorious resin is there sitting in the bottom in the screen. Now I've only ever heard of, or I've, I've only ever experienced and worked one way to get the hash out of the bag. And, and, you know, I was taught that I, I put a a Frisbee, um, uh, open side of the Frisbee pointed up and I stretch my micron screen over over the frisbee, and um, and then I, I gently scrape along it with a um, with a sharp knife, and um, gently remove the the hash. Um, I've never I haven't made hash with a lot of other people though, um, and I'm I'm guessing that a frisbee and a sharp knife is probably not industry standard. Um, what techniques do you like for removing hash from that delicate micron screen? So this is when uh, the game kind of changed um, due to freeze dryers. Your freezer was open. This is when um, the game kind of changed due to freeze dryers. Um, you know, it used to be kind of a harder process when you had to gather um, the resin out the bags and whatnot. Um, now, thankfully due to the freeze dryers, it's not this technical thing anymore. In my opinion, um, you really want it to be wet when you put it in your freeze dry trays, um, wetter, the better that allows the water to actually sublimate out. I see a lot of people trying to dry their patties and that is not the way you need the water in order for the water to be able to escape, um, that's just how sublimation works. So again, we're now pouring this very liquid 
the stuff into trays there it, it is much easier in my opinion you're just scooping it out as quickly as possible pouring it in the trays and loading it into the machine um that's why i love freeze dryers um there's a lot of people who are still hand drying hash air drying hash that's cool i'm not one of them i'm when i wash i'm usually doing production um and the the, the freeze dryer allows that to be possible um, air drying to me is a art unto itself. Um, just a different thing, um, that I personally have moved away from and I am not looking back. I am not looking back to continue microplaning, continue air drying. Now that I have freeze dryers personally, um, it changed everything for me for the better. Wow, being so I have yet to use an air dryer. I certainly have shopped them and and have have enjoyed the quality of, you know, sandy blonde hash that comes out of them, but that description that you gave of that that hashy slurry that you're just able to pour right out of the bag into the tray, god, that sounds like um that sounds really convenient and efficient, right? It's just it's just made me realize like god, I really need to reconsider uh, getting, um, a dryer like that. Um, so, but for the folks who are not going to be doing that, uh, folks like, you know, most of us who are going to be air drying, um, once you have the, the micron screen taut over something like a Frisbee and, and you are removing it as much as you can from the screen, um, what do you, recommend that people put that hash on to start the process of air drying. You know, the, the classic is the pizza box, right? As a matter of fact, there's, it's totally funny the the pizza place here on the Island, um, where I live on Vashon Island, they are so used to people coming in and just buying pizza boxes for hash because there's so much cannabis produced historically on my island that that the pizza place knows what they're going to be used for and everybody gets a chuckle out of it but um but you know people have been using pizza boxes for a long time and um i suspect there are much better options to use so so what do you recommend to folks if if they're not going to go the uh the freeze dryer way See, again, this is just like something that like uh, I don't want to necessarily uh, dive down because it's been literally probably two years since I air dried hash. Um, it's just really not my focus. It's not what I'm into. Um, and I will say, though, the last times I did do it, I totally used pizza boxes like everybody else. I would freeze the patties, you know, take them out, freeze the patties and then microplane them onto um onto cardboard you know and to me it was never perfect wasn't ideal and that's why i've moved away from it personally mm -hmm. so one of the things that you know i know that microplaning is um you know kind of standard for non-commercial um you know production um i've always had the idea though that you know i don't particularly like microplaning because if I am using the microplane and I am rupturing the trichomes, um, that is releasing the oil to become in contact with air. And sure, my, my, my hash is going to get oxidized anyway if I'm going to be um, air drying it. But it's also creating 
an opportunity for the terpenes that are within the resin to touch the air and to just simply, you know, you know, go away, right? You know, like they're so they're so easily volatilized that I, I suspect I'm losing terpenes. Is is that a fair concern when microplaning or or am I being or am I aware of a concern that really is doesn't play out? I mean, that goes back to me to common sense. I completely agree with you. How could grinding a glandular trichome head across a sharp metal surface not potentially rupture multiple? I imagine it is. And that's why, to me personally, I feel that microplaning is inferior to the freeze dryer. I feel air drying is inferior to the freeze dryer. That's just how I personally feel. I have friends who think, um, you know, air drying is the way it makes a superior product. I have never experienced that. Not once in my life have I ever seen air dried stuff next to a freeze dried and been like, oh, that's better. I never have. Um, I understand someone sitting at home doesn't necessarily have access to a freeze dryer. Um, so you're just going to have to dry it any way you possibly can. Um, breaking it down exposes the surface area and allows it to dry quicker. That's why people microplane is simply because it breaks it all the way down. Um, um, I've seen people use credit cards, knives, just push it through a sieve. There's many ways you can go about breaking it down further if you want to. Um, it's just going to be, in my opinion, about trial and error and seeing which one works for you. Um, I hate to promote freeze dryers so hard to the home person, but just to me, it really was a game changer, you know, definitely an investment nonetheless. But if you're making enough hash to fill a freeze dryer, then to me, it's a no brainer. It pays for itself really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those economies of scale. Like if you're going to be producing enough to fill that, that dryer, it'll pay for itself the first time you use it. And, and so that it is for that, but, you know, to be inclusive of all the home folks, um, you know, put pushing through a sieve and then, um, and then removing the water just simply with evaporation is still incredibly common. And, and and I know that you, you know, you don't practice this anymore, but I'm going to take one more step down this path because there's a lot of people who are listening who like me, this is, this is what we got. Right. And so this is the process that we're going to use. So, so once the once the the hash material is pushed through a, a strainer or a sieve, which helps break it up on the pizza box, perhaps a pizza box covered with uh, parchment, um, you know, I see there's a lot of different versions of people maybe, you know, putting the pizza boxes in a tent or putting them in front of a box fan. Some people who have got a nice enclosed area, they'll put in a, a box fan for rotation and potentially an air conditioner to keep it cool, and then potentially a dehumidifier to help remove the water as well. Um, you know, if you can reach back two years into your experience, was there a particular setup that you liked when you actually did air dry? I like it doing it in the cold. To me, it's all about doing it in the cold. You can pretty much dry hash in a regular freezer almost all the way. You know, to me, cold is the way to do it. Not warm, but cold, as cold as you possibly can get it. 
oh, that's a really that's a really interesting idea. I had not even considered that. It's the same process that eventually, uh, you know, freezer burns food. But if you're only using it for a few days, the 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 nature of the freezer um, is dehydrating, and and putting it in a freezer, you will not only keep it cold and keep those turps from volatilizing, but you are evaporating out the water. Well, uh, you just upgrade, upgraded my game. I'm going to be doing that next time. Um, uh, <laughs> that's, that's really no, there's good. lots of ways. And like I said, please reach out to someone like reach out to like Kush Kirk, um, Brandon, he loves air drying. He's like real passionate about it. So like, I'm not trying to be vague and suddenly sh- shut down when it came to this, for, you know, where the conversation switched. I just don't like to like talk on stuff that I'm not super familiar with, not actively doing now. I just don't want to sound um, um, uh, naive. Um, so like I said, I'm sorry to be vague about hand drying or air drying um, I just haven't been doing it a lot recently. I don't want to, you know, uh, talk on it too much. But like I said, Brandon um, does it. Uh, um, there's a lot of a lot of people out there that are doing it still. Um, Simply Adam, he's one too. Uh, please, by all means, you're trying to air dry, hand dry. You can do it. There's many ways to do it. You can do it with dehums. You can do it with heat. You can do it with cold. To me, the way is cold. Right on. So the last thing before we go to our second commercial break is is a, kind of like a like a systemic strategy, right? Um, you know, you you've used the idea of cooking and recipes several times, and you know, there's a, there's this idea in French cooking of of mise en place, which is you you cut all your ingredients and you get all your your stuff out and on the counter before you start. So that you're not like, oh, where the hell did I put the whatever when you're in the process of cooking the meal? And um, I suspect, though we've not talked about this, that you are probably a person who is, um, you know, maybe not now since you are so experienced, but writing a list of what your process is and making sure that you have everything out in advance um, uh, you know, is, is probably a good idea, especially for folks that are trying to teach themselves how to do this. You know, the, the less pressure or the more time you can buy for yourself as you're actually in the moment, making the hash is probably the best thing. So, so what do you recommend for people as far as like, you know, you got all your materials. What do you recommend for people for like a, a, a smart, efficient setup? You don't need much, you know what I mean? Like, you really don't need much. Um, you know, my room is probably about 8 by 10. Uh, that's all it really is. You know, uh, I definitely have a sink in there. It's going to help to have a, the deep sink so you can w- rinse your bags as soon as possible, as soon as you pull them out. That's really important with fresh frozen materials, you know, cleaning them almost instantly. Um, so having a sink with water is good. Um, I like to have a, a large reservoir there that's there that um, holds all the water that I need. You know, some places, labs I work, they have, you know, enough water that's on demand. That's really nice. I like to have a large reservoir that I can ice down personally, you know, something that I can physically be dropping ice into so that my water source is nice and cold. So I like to have a reservoir that, you know, has enough water for the day and that I can continually drop um, ice into 
uh, you know, I like to have a small freezer in my workspace so that I can have my material in there and it's going straight from the freezer into the bags, you know, and also have enough ice on demand in there if you don't have the ice machine present. Um, so it's nice to have that. Um, you know, personally, I have my freeze dryer in my cold room so that it's right there so that I am, you know, my, my freeze dryer is on and running, so it is all cold. The trays are cold, so that when I am putting it into there, it is going from, like, you know, the cold room into that negative 40 almost instantly. It freezes in minutes, you know. So it's nice to have the freeze dryer in the cold room right next to you. Um, in a perfect world, you would have a drain in your floor. You know, obviously, that's not ideal. But working outside takes care of that situation as well. Um, it's nice to have a assortment of different size spoons on you, you know, just small, medium, large spoons, have them on a nice metal tray so that they're all nice and clean. Um, it helps to have, you know, some hand sprayers, little pump sprayers filled with alcohol, you know, just so you can keep cleaning your utensils, clean your bags. Um, I also like to have a, a sprayer so that you can spray, um, the hash whether you're using a hand pump sprayer from Chapin, use that for years, that works. You know, a lot of people now are using those like nine gallon flow zone, um, you know, battery operated pumps to spray with other people, labs. I'm seeing people are, you know, basically getting these things installed so that they have water pumps with little sprayers at the end of it. I like that because then you can kind of have a reservoir for your hand sprayer so you can ice down that real nice and have as much water as you need and not have to be pumping all day long possibly um and then obviously just an assortment and barrels barrels to row in barrels for your bags it's always good to have extra barrels just to like throw bags in while you work and whatnot never hurts but uh I feel like that's pretty much everything that's in my room, you know. There's not really much in there. It's kind of just an open space so that you got room to work in. Right on. So we're going to talk about storage next, but let's do that after the commercial break. Um, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is hashmaker Ganja Gill the Ice Wook. If you listen to Shaping Fire and you grow your own cannabis, chances are high that you are very particular about the inputs you use for growing. People like us painstakingly self-educate on cannabis nutrients and techniques so we can cultivate the best tasting and cleanest flowers possible. And when we go to purchase those nutrients, we want to be sure that our supplier shares our values and is providing exceptional quality. This is why I recommend buildasoil.com to my friends who care about quality. Build-A-Soil empowers organic growers to do their best work by sourcing and shipping only the finest cannabis growing supplies. From organic inputs, soils, soil testing and pots, to lights, growing tents, sprayers, and cover crops, Build-A-Soil founder Jeremy Silva doesn't just stock his store with what's available. He goes deep to personally vet each product for quality and determine that there isn't a better version of the product that he could be selling. Because of this arduous process, you know that your options on buildasoil.com have been carefully curated to create the results you are looking for. Not only that, but the Build a Soil way is a philosophy that will permeate your interaction with the company. 
From website design to pricing and shipping to after-purchase support, Jeremy and his team always strive to do their best and give you the best customer service in the business. Check out buildasoil.com today for top-tier quality cultivation supplies and a friends and family buying experience. And check out their educational videos and extraordinary social media while you're there too. Quality organic growing supplies at buildasoil.com. While I love growing under the sun, there's a lot of good reasons to grow indoors. And if you're like most folks, you want a lighting source that grows high-yielding, healthy plants without using excessive amounts of electricity. BIOS Lighting creates biological lighting solutions that brings the natural brilliance of the outdoors into your grow room. BIOS Lighting has the attributes that I look for in a horticultural lighting solution. I've bought those cheap lights online, and they're difficult to work with and fail in no time. In contrast, my BIOS LED light is industrial grade to last a long time. It is IP66 wet rated, so little foliar overspray won't harm it. It is easy to clean without taking it down, and of course, the most important aspect, it is built for the exact light spectrum I want for great yielding, healthy cannabis plants. And it doesn't hurt that their lighting rigs look badass too. Many horticultural LED lighting systems are based on irrelevant performance metrics, and people love to argue online about these numbers. I prefer to judge on par photon efficiency and how happy my plants are, and the BIOS lights exceed my expectations in these categories. BIOS lights have an optimized broad spectrum that maximizes photosynthesis and plant growth while also providing the ideal conditions for superior par efficacy and a comfortable visual experience. I also love their attentive and overeducated customer service folks. BIOS starts with a team of biologists before getting the electrical engineers involved. They have studied how light impacts cannabis plants and devised an overall strategy that works. I encourage you to check out their website at bioslighting.com to learn more about how this strategy can work for you. And Shaping Fire listeners can get a special deal. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, no caps, for 10% off your entire purchase. That's bioslighting.com. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shangolos YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile. Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash shangolos or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is hashmaker Ganja Gill, the Ice Wook. So at this point, we have got ourselves some hash made, 
and it is ready to rock. And my question for you, Gil, is curing. You know, a lot of people believe that some special magic happens um, from the interplay of the, the terpenes and the other subtle, you know, organic compounds that are in the hash that make it something more than simply a, uh, a trichome that's been removed from the plant. Um, what are your thoughts on, on curing to capture the, uh, any of that um, increase in quality from just time? Yeah, curing is interesting. Um, you know, curing, you know, I feel like, you know, with flour, it's just essentially letting the flour marinate in its own aromas. That's what it is. Um, with resin, you know, it's tough because you're, you know, I'm typically washing fresh frozen resin. And then when it comes out, I want to keep it cold. So it's this process of continuing to keep it cold. So what I would call, you know, fresh resin, I don't know if it's really curing all that much in my freezer. You know, me personally, my melt, I have to keep it in my freezer, otherwise it'll grease. So in my freezer, is it really curing? I'm not really sure it is. You know, that's that's where I stand with it, the melt. I'm not sure if it's really doing much while in that freezer. I don't know if it's getting better. You know, I have freezer, I have melt in my freezer from two years ago. I don't know if it's much different today than it was two years prior. For me, the curing process really comes into play with rosin. You know, me personally, I'm not so much into the traditional hashies, the temple balling and stuff like that, the pucks, that's not me. I keep my full melt at freezer temperature. That's the way to keep it, pixie dust, beach sand, whatever you want to call it, you know. So me personally, it's staying in the freezer, and I don't think my hash is really curing too much in there, in my opinion. I then take the hash and I turn it into rosin, and there is definitely a very big difference between freshly pressed rosin and cured rosin. There is absolutely a difference into that. So, And to me, it goes back to they're just two very different things. I'm not willing to call one superior to the other. Um, I really enjoy fresh pressed rosin. I also enjoyed cured rosin, so it kind of, again, to me, they're just different things. Um, when it comes to curing the rosin, you know, uh, most people these days are calling it a cold cure. Um, it's one of those funny things about the industry where no one is curing it in the cold, sadly. Um, if you cold cure rosin, it's going to actually give you a real dry texture, kind of the opposite of what people are trying to achieve through the curing process. You know, people want that wet batter. And again, the way you get that wet batter is by letting your rosin sit, in my opinion, at, uh, you know, 70 degrees or higher, you know, 70 to 90 is kind of perfect. You know, once you start pushing the temperatures, I start to call it more like a jam tech or jar tech, you know, you're going to start crashing stuff out. So me personally, I am never heating post press. I just, you know, press it and then let it sit at room temperature, essentially. Um, I live in Trinity County, so it is very hot in the summertime. So I have a pantry that gets a little warmer than my house that's air conditioned. So I'm personally putting my jars in that room that's slightly warmer. 
just takes several days depending on strain goes through the marbling process and then ends up being one um, tone. And then you essentially just stir it, you whip it, you press it, you uh, compact it and give yourself that wet batter um, texture, um, which people like to refer to as cold cured. Um, Some people are then not getting a wet enough consistency for their liking. So then they're putting it in an oven at 200 degrees and heating it to give it that more wet, sweaty texture. Again, personally, that goes against my beliefs and what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm seriously just trying to uh, do it with, like I said, room temperature, essentially. Yeah, the idea of reheating it after the fact. Oh, my gosh, that sounds like that'd be terrible for volatilizing all those all those terps that you've gone through so much effort at this point to be able to preserve. It's like it's like giving them all back there at the end. The other thing that um, um, is remarkable or, or worth remark from the curing that you just described Unlike when we're making temple balls or or pressed uh, hashish bricks or something like that, that is often so the the you know that the hashish components can intermix and kind of like evolve their flavor together. It sounds like the curing process you're describing is not so much for the evolution of, of the taste. It sounds like it's more about. Um, getting the hash rosin to a, a, a uniform consistency and stability so that it stays the way you want it to be over time. Is that a, a, an agreeable, you know, understanding of what you're what you're suggesting? Yeah, I don't really disagree with that. That's a that's a good uh, that's a good way of looking at it for sure. It's definitely about texture. Um, you know, the uh, the art of hashish is a deep, complex thing. There's a lot of, you know, traditional hashish methods that exist. Um, you know, the aging and the whatnot that you're talking about there, that is, that is very valid. And there are many people doing that. It's just not necessarily what I am currently focused on from watching, from watching fresh frozen material we are focused on terp preservation that's what we're trying to do we're trying to preserve those terpenes at all costs and that's why we're freezing material that's why we're washing it cold that's why we're freeze drying it you know to me letting hash sit at room temperature simply degrades terpenes that's just a fact to me it just happens um you know some people will tell you the ones that stick out and the ones that last are what it's about. You know, that's what Frenchie Cannoli told me is he likes, you know, the stuff to sit out and age and the terpenes that are able to like still stay, you know, the ones that don't dissipate, you know, that's what's interesting to him. You know, he, he really enjoys the aging of hash personally, me and what a lot of people are doing in California right now that that's not what we care about. You know, like we are trying to preserve those things that just evaporate. We're trying to hold on to those things that just eventually aren't there anymore. We're trying to preserve that. That's what it's all about. Washing fresh frozen. That's what the freeze dryer is about. You know, me personally, I don't care about having 10 year old hash. I'm not trying to like have stuff in 20 years and open it up and be like, 
oh, this is 20 years old. That doesn't appeal to me personally. Um, have I smoked some really old hash before that was really enjoyable? Absolutely. Totally. Um, I just feel like stuff has shifted in California. And I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying what we're doing now is better than, you know, this ancient stuff that's been going on. I just see it as an evolution. I just see it as in it's it's come to this now and it's going to continue to change to it. Um, and me personally, I don't see the freeze dryer leaving. I don't see it like being a phase to me. They're here to stay. And uh, to me, uh, with the freeze dryer, it's really about preserving those terps. You know, it's really about working with fresh frozen material. Otherwise, yeah, you don't need one. Just air dry your hash and then like leave it out, make bricks of it, make temple balls. Totally cool. That's totally fine. Just to me, it's a different pursuit than working with fresh frozen. Yeah, fair enough. And I think you're right. There's definitely been a bifurcation of the scene where, you know, part of it, um, you know, generally people who don't have access to the freeze dryers are still temple balling it up. And, you know, I'm one of those people and I, and I really like how temple balls evolve taste wise over time. I certainly don't leave them at room temperature. They're, they're in a cooler. Um, but that's really great. But then, you know, when I go over to my buddy's place, who's got a uh, a freeze dryer, and we're having his, you know, you know, beautiful sandy stuff, I'm like, damn, this is really freaking good too, in a different way than the temple balls that I have at my house. Different. And yeah, and it's just, and it's, hey, I I love adding colors to this palette of our relationship with hash, and uh, yeah, and so um, I think I think it's good. To have lots of different products for us all to be able to enjoy what we want. Um, your your comment about you know you're not really you know concerned about you know having your hash be ten or twenty years vintage down the line, but we do all need to to store our hash, right? Um, especially folks who work like like uh, like you do, where you are seasonal, right? You need to you need to grow your your plants during the summer and wash them during the winter, and then and then store it in a way that it's going to be good both for your head stash, but then also for providing for friends, and so. How do you store your hash material? And I'm going to give you two different threshold points. Let's say the first threshold point is stuff that you're going to smoke within like the next two weeks, right? So it's like your, you know, your, your carry around jar or whatever. And then you've got stuff that's going to be in the freezer that you're going to be, you know, keeping at that perfect, uh, consistency, you know, t further than two weeks out. So tell us a little bit about how you handle your stuff. Yeah, to me, um, what I really love about my process is I just freeze all the melt out of my freeze dryer instantly. I used to put it in jars, um, but as people know, you know, glass condensates when it comes out at room temperature. So if you've got hash in a glass jar and it's in your fridge or even freezer um, and you bring it into room temperature, do not open that jar right away. I'm sure most people on your show listening know this, but for the people that don't, you don't open your jar right away. You let it come to room temperature and you kind of wipe the sweat off it, the condensation. You know, you don't want the hash to absorb that moisture. You know, uh, to me, 
the whole idea of using a freeze dryer and drying hash properly is to get the moisture out. So then you don't want to be reintroducing it every time you're pulling your jar out your fridge or freezer. So again, me personally, I stopped using jars to store my melt. I just put it in parchment. Um, uh, there's a brand out there. It's called If You Care. Um, they make a parchment sandwich bags. They're these like, you know, sandwich size parchment bags. It's what they are. Personally, me, I fill those up with melt and then I put them in Ziploc freezer bags and I put them in my freezer. That allows me to store a lot more hash in a small space than having just a bunch of random jars. Also, then when I want it, it's easier for me to take. I honestly keep all my melt in my freezer at all times. Um, if, if I want to smoke it, I pull it out and personally just drop it on some parchment paper and I, I press up a little bit with my fingers to start smoking it, but it stays in my freezer. Um, you know, when you pull that little bit out to enjoy, you know, sometimes I honestly always just keep it in my freezer. I don't even pull it out into the room. So to let it allow it to get room temperature, I feel like if you're just really quick with it, you know, there's not enough time for moisture to really get in there. But uh, again, I am keeping the melt in there at all times. And what I love about that is I have melt in there from two years ago that looks exactly the same as the day as when I put it in there. It is white sand. And then now I'm able to make fresh pressed rosin and at my leisure, you know, if suddenly someone wants some rosin. I just pull it out the freezer and I load it into my little bags and make my rosin with it. And then I have my fresh pressed rosin. Um, to me, that fresh pressed rosin should be stored in a wine cooler, um, 40 degrees ish. That will keep that fine. Um, it should keep most rosin stable. Uh, some, or sorry, um, most rosin that is stable will be fine in a wine cooler. That is all you need. Um, some stuff that's a little less stable, you may want to freeze it just to keep it totally the same for long, long storage. But typically, in my opinion, rosin is fine um, in a refrigerator. Melt in the freezer. And then once you cold cure the rosin at room temperature, I then like to keep it back in the fridge. Um, you know, if it's just stuff that I'm smoking and enjoying over the next couple of weeks, it's totally fine to just keep your cold cured rosin on your coffee table. You don't have to keep it in the fridge by any means. Um, that's the beauty of the cold cure texture is it will stay as that texture um, the whole time. Whereas if you have that fresh pressed rosin on your coffee table, it's going to start to go through the changes, which is nice. That's what I like about fresh press. And that's why I serve a lot of fresh press is because I like to provide that experience where people can actually watch the texture change for them. And then they can kind of make any consistency that they enjoy with it. Hell yeah. Well, you know, I think this brings us to our end there, Gil. Thank you so much for, you know, A, spending this much time with me. I know we've been trying to put together this interview for a few months, but, you know, it's the it's the summer busy season for all of us. So thank you for making the time for us. But then also, thank you for sharing your vast experience on this topic, because, you know, as, as you said at the top of the show, making quality hash is about um, addressing as many of these little variables as we can. And as we continue to address more of these variables, it just continually ups the game of our hash. And as, uh, 
you know, hash becomes a new American pastime as uh, as more home growers come into the scene. Um, this, you know, these 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 best practices that you've developed will will trickle throughout the scene. So so thank you so much for your time and uh, and uh, I, I've enjoyed our chat. No, thank you. I really, really, really appreciate you uh, being so persistent and making this conversation happen. I really hope it helps people who are listening. Um, I really hope uh, your vision of an America where everyone's making small batch concentrates at their home happens. I hope that's where cannabis evolves to. Um, I really hope legalization and normalization really just leads to everyone growing their own cannabis in their yard for themselves. You don't need much room. You know, a few plants goes a long way. Um, that relationship that you'll have with the plant will be therapeutic unto itself. That's my vision for future of cannabis. You know, it's not this crazy wreck world of all these corporations rolling in it. I really want to see just everyone growing cannabis in their yard, sharing it with their neighbors, sharing it with their friends and healing themselves. Beautiful, beautiful. Right on. So if you want to follow along uh, on Ganja Gill, the Ice Wooks adventures, you can follow him best on Instagram. And he's actually got two different Instagram feeds. Um, you'll find that the, uh, the, the, the kind of content that he posts at either one are kind of different, but you'll probably want to follow them both. And so the first Instagram is at the real ice wook, the real ice wook on Instagram. And, uh, uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of hash photos and, and hash, um, you know, preparation photos there. And then, uh, his second Instagram is a little bit more personal, I would say. And that's, uh, at ganja underscore gill underscore and gill is G I L. So it's ganja underscore gill underscore. And both of those are on Instagram. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you'll also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.